Hey, welcome to night school. Just keeping up a, an utterly vampiric lifestyle, not in this blood-draining, blood-drinking sense, but just in the schedule sense. I've been able to work on things and make a little bit of money and do some things that require no schedule lately. And uh, basically doing the opposite of what I was doing a couple years ago. A couple years ago, I got into this routine where I was waking up at 4.30 a.m., 5 at the latest, every single day, no matter what I had to do, including weekends, going to bed before 10 p.m., which I had never done in my life. Even as a kid, I was a night owl. I mean, I was born at, I think, 7.30 p.m. in the winter. So you have to figure that does something to a person. I don't know if it's something you could measure, I'm sure not everybody born at night is a night owl, but it is interesting to me to think about that, that my introduction to the world was at night. But it feels natural. I mean, that's the thing is I really loved waking up early during that time. I loved getting up before dawn. I, I really enjoyed it. It felt like you had control of the whole day. And there's a reason why successful people do that. You can just feel it. It's like the day meets you. It's like you don't meet the day. You're you're ahead of the day. But lately I've been staying up all night pretty much and then sleeping half the day, which during the winter means no daylight. So it's quite a vampiric way to live, but I'm going to have to change it again soon. But anyway, yeah, today was the two-year anniversary of my mom's passing. Not much to say about it. I feel like I cover that often enough. I've covered it recently. No new insights or anything, but you never know how you're going to feel on a day like this. You know, just another day, really, but you're aware of it. And I posted something on Instagram. I posted it because last night I'm trying to sell this digital camera. It turns out people are into buying old digital cameras. I kind of assumed that digital technology like that would be worthless, but it turns out people do want that stuff. But I was going through an old digital camera to try to sell it. And I found, you know, a bunch of old photos. My cat, Rosie, who's no longer around. My mom. And so I posted this photo of my mom. And I just I wrote a little thing about it. And I immediately deleted it. Just because it plays into what I was saying the other day. Where I was just like, you know, there's this gravitational pull on certain days. On anniversaries to say something. In this world we're in. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like if that's what you need. Like there are times when I do feel I need to say something or to make people aware of a significant day. But, uh, you know, the death anniversary, it doesn't mean a lot to me. It is a significant day, and I will always think of December 10th for that reason. But it's, I don't know, I don't see a death anniversary as a day to really reflect on a person's life. At least that's not how I feel. But I immediately deleted it because all I said, you know, is kind of the same thing I always say, which is like, you know, today's not a sad day to me. It's just a, you know, when you think about somebody who lived a truly successful life, it's it's hard to grieve that. But it is one of those situations where I just I recognize that not everybody has that opportunity. Not everybody has the opportunity to feel positive about death. And. It's especially strange when you feel positive about the death of somebody that you had a great relationship and you loved immensely. 
Because you think like, oh, you feel positive about a death when you hated him. But it's interesting when that's not the case at all, when you feel, you know, for lack of a better word, positive. I don't, maybe sublime. When you listen to sublime, that's what I did all day. It's the two-year anniversary of my mom's death, and I listened to Sublime all day. It was her favorite band. <laughs> I wonder if she even knew who Sublime was. My mom might have lived her entire 71 years without knowing who Sublime was. She liked the White Stripes. I know that. She did get in, like, through, I don't know, through, through whatever she paid attention to. She would manage to surprise me sometimes with newer bands that she got into. But uh, I don't think she knew who Sublime was. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, it's more of a, a sublime feeling. Maybe more than positive, but it's one of those things where I was like, do I even need to say this? Am I just doing this because there's this gravitational pull? I guess any desire to do that just comes from like, I like the idea of people seeing my mom's face and maybe thinking about her, whether they knew her or didn't know her. I like that, but I deleted it because it just, it felt like something I was doing because I felt like I, I was expected to do it. Maybe, you know, my sister said something nice and I, I thought that was great, you know, cause she had a, her best friend died on December 10th, 23 years ago. So she has kind of a double whammy. On December 10th where her best friend and her mom both died on the same day 22 years apart 21 years apart so that you know just adds two different people to, to think about on a day like today but for me you know it's like I don't know it almost feels like gloating or something it almost feels like gloating to be like I feel like I can appreciate somebody's death who I have nothing but glowing absolute love for because not everybody has that feeling toward people who die not everybody has my situation but uh, i don't know enough about that uh, you know today i uh a little bit of a synchronicity not a mind-blowing one or anything you know but speaking of synchronicity in the last episode i think it was yesterday or the day before my friend was telling me how she as a kid was obsessed with Anne Boleyn. You know, King Henry VIII's wife, Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn. And as a little girl, she would tell her parents she was Anne Boleyn. Just one of those things, like a kid will pick up on something and just kind of fantasize or something. But then today I saw that some new Anne Boleyn, I guess it's a movie or a show came out, and Anne Boleyn is played by a black woman. <laughs> you know, I'm never surprised by that kind of thing anymore. I'm never surprised by the constant need for that industry and people in general, just common people in general to make decisions like that. Like, oh, you know what we need to do with this historic English you know, story about King Henry VIII. We need to change, we need to make Anne Boleyn black. Wouldn't that be interesting? You know, I'm never surprised by that anymore, but this one actually did surprise me. I had to actually look up to see if it was real. I was like, did they really make a King Henry VIII movie where Anne Boleyn is black? Sure enough, they did. That one surprised me a little bit. 
But at this point, like the way I feel about all that, the way I feel about them constantly revising everything, constantly making these casting decisions, what it reminds me of is like the squirrels in the springtime, the squirrels run up and down the fence behind my house carrying nuts and twigs and they're building their nests. I feel like that's what I'm watching. When I catch a glimpse of what's going on in Hollywood, what's going on with you know the BBC, these sort of creative decisions that are being made, not just the casting, not just the this compulsory diversity casting, not only that, but just all of the decisions that are being made, like the sorts of movies that are being made, the sorts of shows that are being made, which, you know, I don't. I don't seek out, I don't, I don't try to know what's going on with that, but you inevitably learn, you inevitably, it inevitably enters your periphery. But it's almost like watching those squirrels run up and down my fence, where it's almost like, it's just like watching people carry things. It's like watching ants carry little pieces of rice or something on their backs. And it's like, oh, the ants are carrying something to their hive. You know, the the ants are building a, a new. Uh, <laughs> you know, the ants are building a hill. The squirrels are building their nests. That's kind of how I feel, and but I almost feel like I'm insulting squirrels and ants by saying that. But it just feels like an animal running around. But seeing this thing about Anne Boleyn, when I looked up to see if it was actually real. What popped up is a review on a a pretty major website that covers that sort of thing, like a major movie website that has reviews. And so I decided to look at the review because I saw the heading, I saw the title of the review, and it was hilarious to me because it was like a young liberal girl reviewing it, and she was like, "It's a very bland show," and I'm not I'm not going to exaggerate her review. I don't remember her exact words, but her review was basically the show was bland and sucked, but the highlight was the black actress playing Anne Boleyn, and she's one of the most regal Anne Boleyns that to ever be on screen. And I thought I thought that was so funny that she couldn't just say it all sucked because she's not allowed to say that she's not allowed to criticize that absurd ahistorical casting decision. Not that I expect every historical movie to be perfectly accurate but we know what they're doing i mean that's the issue with all of those decisions that get made and it's low-hanging fruit and it doesn't make me mad it's more interesting to me at this point it's interesting to me how far they will take it at what point are they gonna stop doing that you know because people are aware of it people know what they're doing But reading this review, it was funny to me because it's like this girl is such a psychological hostage. She is so possessed that she couldn't just say the the movie or the show was all bad. She had to say it was all bad except for the black actress playing Anne Boleyn. Because you're not allowed to criticize that. You're not allowed to criti- you're not you're not allowed to really notice that decision. Because that's what happens when you point that kind of thing out. When you say, well, hey, uh, they changed this character to a black character and we know why. People will be like, how dare you notice that? You know, there's definitely this issue with noticing things or pointing them out. And I'm not even someone who feels the need to point that out. 
even though I'm doing it here. But when I saw that today, I was just like, man, they, they, they just keep going. They keep going, except unlike the squirrels who run alongside my fence like a highway with nuts and twigs and nest building materials, I don't think they're building a nest. I don't know what they're building. And I think that's why it's interesting to me. Like, I understand I'm, you know, I'm not unaware of the agenda that's at play. But I also wonder just what the end goal is. But this psychological hostage who reviewed it, it was so funny to me that she basically had to say it sucks, but it was a great decision to cast a black woman. You know, it sucks, but it was great that that a black woman played Anne Boleyn. That was basically the gist of her review. And that's, you know, whether she believed that or not, that's what she has to say. And I've seen that play out among friends. And I think at this point I say friends in the past tense because I just don't think I can ever spend time with certain people again. But, you know, I, I've, I've seen these conversations play out in the flesh. I mean, I've used the example on here about, it must have been about six years ago. I was at my girlfriend's house. We woke up and we were just hanging out, drinking coffee in the living room, just waking up and you know, I mean, I thought her roommates were nice, you know, overall, like they were kind of mean to her sometimes, but I got along with them fine. They were definitely caught up and possessed and all this stuff, though. But it wasn't nearly as bad then as it is now, but still living in Olympia, it was still there. It was still undeniably there. But there was a girl who was her roommate and she was an artist and I thought she was very nice, very quiet and nice kind of a, you know, kind of twee, that word twee, she's kind of twee, kind of had that twee sort of vibe, like she probably listened to shoegaze, very artsy, but we were all just sitting around drinking our coffee, and she walked in the room, and she was like, you know, I read the most interesting article on blah, 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 it was about how Instagram filters are racist, because blah, 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 blah. And I just thought that was so funny that she wanted to discuss that. She read an article that was about how Instagram filters are racist against black people. And she thought it was a good thing to bring up. Like you could tell she thought about it before she came in the room. You could tell that it was premeditated. Because that was a crime. What she did was a crime to bring that up. And so it was a premeditated crime where she walked in. You could tell she was like, what's a good talking point? while my roommates and I are drinking our coffee and she walked in the room and like presented it like a like something that we are going to discuss I just read the most interesting article about how Instagram filters are actually racist against black people because blah 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 and it's like do you know how shadows and contrast work do you know (laughs) it's like you might as well just say that lighting is racist. It's like, have you ever tried to take a picture of a dark object? Like I have a dog, like my dog is almost entirely black. Batty is almost entirely black. 
you know, if the lighting isn't right, which is most of the time, it just looks like an amorphous shadow. Like trying to take a picture of Batty, like half the time you can't see his face. All you see is like an amorphous black shape in, you know, easily half of the photos I try to take of him. Like the lighting has to be pretty much perfect. It has to pretty much illuminate his features perfectly because there's no contrast. He has black eyes, a black nose, black eyes, a black nose. But no, he has, you know, there's very little contrast. And, you know, obviously, if you have lighter skin, your features cast more of a shadow. I mean, here I am explaining it, but, you know, it was just so absurd. Like, that's pretty much what you're saying. It's like lighting is racist. Anything except the best possible lighting is racist. I mean, recently I've tried to sell some objects on eBay that are completely black. And that's a good example where it's like, even with great lighting, like my friend lent me these uh, kind of professional photography lights, which have been a godsend. You don't realize how bad the lighting is in your house. And, you know, I have plenty of lights in my house, but you don't realize how bad the lighting is in your house for taking photos until you try to take pictures of small, dark objects. But even with these professional lights, even then it's difficult to take pictures of dark objects. So it's basically like lighting is racist because people with dark skin aren't as apparent unless it's perfect lighting. I just read the most interesting article. Or the guy who, you know, a few years ago, a drinking buddy of mine recommended me a, a modern sci-fi comic. And he was like, oh, it's such a great story and great characters. And, he's, it's, and it's so progressive. And he used that as a selling point. I just never would have thought of that as a selling point. Like, it plays into that way of thinking, and, and I use that as an example because it's that sort of person who sees that they made a new Anne Boleyn where she's played by a black woman, and they don't enjoy it, but they say, oh, that's so progressive. That's so progressive that they did that. And it adds a whole new dimension to the story, and yeah, I didn't see it. I didn't watch it. Unlike this girl who reviews for, like, I don't know... I don't know what the website was. It's a big website. It's a big website that has movie reviews. Like, this girl is paid to write reviews. But unlike her, I didn't watch it. She probably didn't watch it either. (laughs) You know, she probably didn't even watch it. You could probably write a review about it without watching it. But it adds a whole new dimension because now you have King Henry VIII as this white, patriarchal, evil king... And he's not just a brutal misogynist who killed a bunch of his wives, which he did. But he's now killing his black wife. He's now mistreating his black wife. So it adds this whole racial... Because there's that whole genre of race porn where a lot of people enjoy movies of white people mistreating black people and then black people getting some kind of revenge. That's a genre that's developed. And uh, it, sort of, it, it turned the King Henry VIII story, which, you know, is already a, you know, it, it already is about a nasty guy who was cruel to his wives. But now it adds a racial component where he's this nasty white patriarch 
beheading his black wife. And I don't know if that factors into the story. I don't know if they acknowledge it. I don't care to know. But it just adds that whole component to it. It forces it into everything else that's going on. Every other... Everything. It forces it into everything. Because that is everywhere. And what it reminds me of, too, is I think it was last year or the year before... It was probably two years ago. One of my good friends messaged me and he was just, it was this time a year, two years ago, I think it was. And he just said, oh, hey, uh, just a heads up, there's going to be a new Christmas Carol movie on such and such channel. And I'm a big Christmas Carol fan. I'm a big fan of the Christmas Carol. I've seen it. As a kid, I saw it in the theater in Seattle. I saw a professional theatrical performance of it. One of my absolute favorite movies as a little kid was Mickey's Christmas Carol. That's still the best. Mickey's Christmas Carol, because I'm, I'm such a fan of Duckburg, that Scrooge McDuck as Scrooge. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck as Scrooge is perfect. That's Scrooge to me. Scrooge McDuck is the ultimate Scrooge. Goofy as Jacob Marley is still the ultimate Jacob Marley. And I think I've mentioned it before, but ever since I was about four or five years old, I've been obsessed with Jacob Marley. I don't know what it is. You know, I found out my dad was actually an exceptionally talented artist because of Jacob Marley. When I was a little kid, I think it was before my parents got divorced. I was watching surprise, surprise Mickey's Christmas Carol because I would watch it over and over again. You know, some kids would watch this or that over and over again. I would watch Mickey's Christmas Carol over and over again. And I had my, I paused it on Goofy as Jacob Marley. And I had my dad, I asked my dad to draw that for me. Because before I could actually draw, I used to request drawings from my parents and sister and grandma. Like I still remember being at my grandma's house and like asking her to draw me a cowboy and, you know, as my mom remembered, like, I would get angry. Like, not even angry, but frustrated. Because I would be like, I want him to have this kind of mustache. I was focused on these very small details. And I would demand that my relatives, you know, I was like a little Andy Warhol with his team of people designing art for him. With his assembly line. But I asked my dad to draw me goofy as Jacob Marley and... He, dude, it was perfect. It was crazy. And my mom didn't even know that he was a talented artist because he had never pursued it. But he did it. The lines were perfect. Like, I can still, I don't know whatever happened to that. I don't think I still have it. Who knows what happened to that? I wish I had it. But uh, what I remember of it is that it just had perfect lines. Like, it was like a cartoonist drew it. It was just an outline of him. He didn't color it in or anything, but it was just, he looked at it on the screen and it looked like it had been traced by a professional cartoonist. It was incredible. And so whatever, for whatever reason, I've just been obsessed with Jacob Marley and I had all these weird theories about him. Like there's a videotape of me from like my family got a video camera at some point when I was a kid and it's my birthday and I'm, Surprise, surprise, talking about Jacob Marley for no reason. There's no reason for it. I was just so obsessed with that character. 
and uh, I'm explaining to my mom how he died, which I don't believe is part of any of the stories, not that I know of. As far as I know, he died of natural causes. But I'm telling my mom, I'm, I say, they killed him and they threw him in the river. I don't think that's a part of the story. Somehow, maybe I had a dream, maybe I had a vision, but as a little kid, I'm explaining on videotape to my mom that Jacob Marley's death, like they, somebody killed him and threw him in the river. And right now, and it's it's actually there permanently, I brought it out. I have this little ceramic Jacob Marley figurine, not goofy as Jacob Marley, but it's Jacob Marley as a man. And he's wrapped in chains. The way he's always depicted, he has a handkerchief holding his jaw together, because that's the whole thing, is that he has this handkerchief around his, like, vertically. Like, instead of wearing it like, like a headband, it's vertical, and it's tied at the top of his head because it's holding his jaw closed. And if he takes it off, his jaw opens. And, uh... So he's pretty much always depicted wearing the same clothes and he's wrapped in chains and the chains are connected to like chests of money because his burden is that he was so greedy that he now has to drag like this heavy, heavy chains and money around coins in treasure chests. He just has to drag them around. But it wasn't even like the idea of Jacob Marley that I was attracted to. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what it was. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I really like that character because it shows you how greed weighs heavy on your soul. And when you become a ghost, that's reflected in the burden you must drag around. You know, I didn't even know really what they were talking about. I just knew that he warned Scrooge. He was Scrooge's business partner and he warned him. His ghost warned him. But I think just the way he looked and everything, and Goofy in particular caught my imagination, but... It wasn't limited to Goofy. And I have this tiny little ceramic Jacob Marley as a man where he's wearing his chains and everything and he has his arm outstretched. He's holding his arm up kind of like he's making a demand. And I I have that on this weird little, I don't even know what to call it. It's like this strange pagan-looking decoration that my family's had forever. It's a little metal tray, like a little circular metal tray, almost like a metal drink coaster. Not really, but it's it's almost like that size. And it's suspended from a, kind of a hook by a chain mounted to a base. And then it has these kind of pagan leaves, green leaves, also made out of metal, along the side of the hooked thing. And then on the little... On the, on the little tray thing that's, suspend, that's suspended by a chain, there's a magnifying glass. Like just the glass of a magnifying glass, like a circular piece of glass that's held in place, and it magnifies whatever's on the tray. And the little Jacob Marley figurine fits perfectly on this tray. So all year long now, I've had this little Jacob Marley on this kind of pagan decoration suspended by a chain magnified. And it casts a shadow of him on the wall surrounded by light. Like the way that light enters the magnifying glass makes it so there's this little shadow of this Jacob Marley figurine on my wall. But the figurine's shadow is surrounded by a circle of light. It really worked out perfect. (laughs) Didn't even plan it. But anyway, so I don't know why. And then years later, not that long ago actually, it was just in the last few years, I was talking to my childhood best friend Nick 
and we were because t- we never really talked about a Christmas Carol much. Like that was a certain part of my childhood, but by the time I was friends with him, we were into Star Wars and Marvel. We didn't have a reason to talk about a Christmas Carol. Turns out I didn't have a lot of reason to talk to many people about a Christmas Carol, but I was obsessed with it. And uh, he brought it up out of the blue, and he was like, you know, I was always obsessed with that Jacob Marley character. And I was like, you were too? Like, we were best friends our entire childhood, you know, and well into adulthood. We're still, you know, he's still among my closest friends, still among my best friends. And it's funny that I didn't even know that he shared that obsession with Jacob Marley too. And it's like, now I know why we're friends. What is it about Jacob Marley that was so, that caught our imagination so much? But anyway, to get back to the story, you know, a few years ago, two uh, two years ago, he, he sent me a message and he's like, oh, there's going to be a new Christmas Carol on uh, maybe BBC or one of those channels. And I was like, cool, I don't have anything better to do. Maybe it'll be good. I've seen a lot of different versions of it and most of them are good. Like there's that classic live action one. There's a few of them, but there's one in particular where Jacob Marley is freaking terrifying. There's one where he's utterly terrifying. But this one, it's a modern one. But I thought it could be good if they stay true to the story. I started it, and it starts out with a little kid pissing on Jacob Marley's grave, which felt like a personal insult to me. And it's also a way of making it like new and crass, almost like some like pseudo-HBO thing. Where it's like, oh, Jacob Marley was such a bad guy that little kids piss on his grave. But you see this stream of urine. You don't just see it, him pissing on the grave itself. I believe they actually show the casket under the ground with urine dripping on it. And so right away, I'm like, why'd they need to add that? I can tell you that's not in any other telling of A Christmas Carol. And so right away, I, that was kind of a red flag where I'm like, it starts with a kid pissing on Jacob Marley's grave and you see the urine drip on his casket. It's not even about my love for Jacob Marley, you know, and the disrespect that that shows him because it turns out he wasn't a great guy. He was a greedy miser. But it was just the fact that they felt the need to do that. Again, it's like, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make it edgy. You're trying to do a new version of A Christmas Carol, and you're trying to make it edgy by showing urine in the first scene. But it only got worse from there, because in this version, guess what? Bob Cratchit's wife is black. You know, this is Victorian England. This is Victorian England from, what, the early 18th century, I believe, is when it takes place. And you have to insert an interracial relationship into that. You have to make Bob Cratchit's wife black. And if you're not familiar, which I don't, I don't know how you could be unfamiliar, but if you're not familiar, Bob Cratchit is the, the poor man, the poor man, who we call a poor man, who works for Scrooge and takes abuse from him. So just when I saw that, I'm like, is this real? Like they really had to make a new Christmas carol where Bob Cratchit's wife is black. And again, it, it only got worse from there because there's a part where uh, there's a part where they have Scrooge me too, Bob Cratchit's wife. Like, I think he hires her to clean or something. 
and he brings her into the office and he tells her to strip and I think he propositions her. I think he offers to pay her money to screw her. I don't remember it exactly because I was just so mortified. So embarrassed for whoever made this show. It's like you had to make Bob Cratchit's wife black in A Christmas Carol, which takes place in 18th century Victorian England. And then you had to have a Me Too scene where Scrooge humiliates and basically um, sexually harasses and propositions Bob Cratchit's wife, his black wife. Like, couldn't you have just done one of those things? You know, couldn't you have just done one thing? But no, you had to make the whole dang movie like this. So it shouldn't be a surprise that they made Anne Boleyn black too. And the thing is, if you, you know, and I don't, I don't like point this out to people I know. I mean, there's, there's very few people I even talk to right now who would even be taken by that kind of thing and be like, well, it's actually a good, you know, I read the most interesting article about how King Henry VIII was actually racist. I read the most interesting article about how King Henry VIII made Instagram filters and he, he purposely made them racist because he hated his black wife, Anne Boleyn, and he cut her head off. You know, it's like at that at this point, that all, might as well all be the same conversation. But if you notice that and don't just notice it, but it's like if you if you're aware of what they're doing and why it's fake. And why it's low quality and why it's not creative, because that's what it comes from. You know, because if you point it out, though, the idea is like, oh, you don't like black people in movies, huh? And then you have to defend yourself because like so many of these arguments are built around like if you notice something, you're put into a position where you now have to like explain how oh, I love black people in movies. You now have to list all of the movies with black people in them that you like, which you do. Unless you're truly off your rocker, you like plenty of movies with black people in them when it makes sense when it's done well but when you're simply aware of this escalating trend because it's escalating it's escalating to a point where i don't know if they can sustain it i don't know what they're going to do i mean what i see is just total collapse it's just total collapse and people don't even like it like that girl who reviewed it for like indie indie wire is that what it's called? Is it called IndieWire? IndieWire. IndieWire. I think it was called Indie. I want to actually look it up. I want to get it right. I want to know what website I'm talking about. IndieWire. IndieWire. The girl who reviewed it for IndieWire. You know, it's like even she knew that it was fake and terrible. But because... She's a young liberal girl writing for IndieWire. She had to be like, it was terrible, except great, great decision casting the black woman. And maybe she did a great job. And that's the sad thing about that is, you know, maybe the person is a good actor. Maybe they have integrity themselves, but they're basically being put in a no win situation. So to me, it's insulting to them. To me, it's insulting to the actors who are forced to do that as much as it is anybody else. 
and uh, but there is there's also a certain sort of person who they like it because it's pseudo progressive because that's what it is. It's not progressive. That's not progressive. That's not progressive. It's not though. That's not an actual. That's not progressive. It's manufactured. It's completely fake. It's a great example of Maya. It's a great example of the illusion. It's a great example of an entire culture or an entire industry just completely lost in a web of illusion. And that makes it fun, though. Like, I enjoy it. Like, like trust me, I don't, even though I'm critiquing it here, I don't see that and go, oh, my God, can you believe this? You ruining Anne Boleyn you know it's like you're ruining Anne Boleyn for me you know I don't feel that way you're ruining a Christmas carol you couldn't ruin a Christmas carol for me but no it's, it's not ruining anything for me it's not upsetting me you sound really upset I think you're upset your hatred is showing my hatred oh it makes me feel so hateful oh my god I feel so hateful it's making me feel so hateful no, you know, I feel no level of actual anger or disgust. It's more just like, it is like watching an accident. You know, people always use that example. It's like watching a car accident. It is kind of like watching a car accident. When I see the sorts of decisions that are being made in entertainment, I do kind of feel like I'm watching a car accident. And I feel like I'm watching another, I feel like I'm watching somebody else crash into another car accident. Like, you know, you always hear about that where there's a car accident on the highway that already happened. And oh, another car comes along who didn't notice and they crash right into the crash. You're crashing into the crash. Like when I see this review on IndieWire, I'm like, oh, that's another car crashing into the crash. It's funny <laughs> because I do want to see a total collapse. I do want to see a total collapse of the entertainment industry. I don't want to egg it on. You know, and it's different than another industry collapsing. It's like, but all those people are going to lose their jobs. They'll find other jobs. Those people are resourceful. A lot of those people come for money. So many of the people who get into that business already come from families with, you know, resources. That's why they're there. Not all of them, but, you know, I can't feel bad for anybody who's participating in that at this point. But no, there's, I get an, I get a sick thrill out of it. Every time I see another example of it, I get a little sick thrill out of it. Because it is so unnatural. Because there are natural ways to tell stories, and we know them when we see them because we typically like them. But we're living in a time when the illusion is so thick, but it's so obvious. It's thick and ever-present, but it's completely obvious. You see it everywhere. And, you know, I wonder how long can people go living in that? How long can the average progressive-minded person watch this pseudo-progressive nonsense and go, well, I think... It sucked, but I kind of like it because they made this clearly pandering decision to people like me. Because they're not trying to appeal to black people. Like, when you make Anne Boleyn black, you're taking a movie that, like, 
probably the average black person isn't even going to be interested in. And you're twisting it, but you're not going to make it appealing to them. Like, black people aren't going to be like, oh, you know, because they know when they're being pandered to and they point it out. They're well aware of it. I'm speaking for them here. I think I can speak for them because I, I see it expressed often. You know, I see that people are well aware of what's being done. Who that's marketed to are the people like the girl I was just talking about who's like, I just read the most interesting article about how Instagram filters are racist. They're playing to people like her and people who have even less going on than her. And uh, just where does that go? Because the thing is, People are addicted to entertainment. You know, when I was reading Ted Kaczynski's Manifesta, when I was uh, reading his Manifesta, he talked about how, you know, the nature of our society today is dependent on entertainment. It's dependent on entertainment. Like, without it, you know, people really can't cope. And I think that's more true than ever. And it's a fairly obvious point to make. But, you know, Ted Kaczynski felt that, like, the only pay, the only way that people can really deal with reality, the only way that they can actually deal with their lives in this society is to have this entertainment. And I, and I think that's gotten more true with Netflix. It's gotten more true with Hulu, which, you know, speaking of my mom, I still th- every time I think of Hulu, I think of her because her next door neighbor was this middle aged gay man who would have wild parties. They were fun. Like, they weren't orgies. Like, I don't mean wild in that sense, but it was just like a bunch of middle-aged gay men who drank tons of alcohol, just had... There was so much alcohol. I can't believe how much alcohol was in that house, just given to everybody. It wasn't the sort of... It certainly wasn't like a bring-your-own-beer environment. It was just like guys would make these, like flavored custard they would make their own like flavored vodka and bring it in some fancy container it was amazing actually when i look back on that he's dead (laughs) he's dead too uh but uh, a lot of fun i had a lot of fun at those parties but uh there was one where there was like this young gay man a young like young asian gay man and he was just wasted to the point of, you know, it was just too funny to talk to him. And he kept talking about Hulu. And Hulu was brand new. Like, nobody knew what it was like they do today. Like, I barely knew what it was. I barely knew what Hulu was. But he kept bringing up Hulu. It was like a drunk person who's just fixated on something. And he, he's like, no, but you got this, this show on Hulu. It was, like, it was like something involving science. I don't know if it was fiction or nonfiction. But it was some sort of Hulu show about science. And this is probably like... 12 years ago and he was just he he just kept bringing it up and he was trying to tell my mom about it and she didn't drink so she was just sitting there sober talking to this extremely drunk young gay man about hulu but she didn't know what he she didn't know what hulu was and the way he was describing it was so abstract the way he was trying to describe this show and my mom kept saying like what's hulu is it some kind of think tank and <laughs> you could tell that think tank was a new phrase she had learned. 
That was around the time that think tank became this new buzzword that people were hearing. Like, oh, it's a, it's a think tank. Oh, there's a new Republican think tank. And the way he was describing it did make it sound like it was some, like he was describing something political. Like he did make it like, like, even though like it didn't sound like, like, I don't know where my mom got think tank. Cause I don't think my mom knew what a think tank actually was. And she really didn't know what Hulu was. And this guy who was just out of his mind was describing whatever it was in the most abstract terms. He was trying to describe something he had watched and it just, it, it like f- fractured into just like just tiny little pieces of thought and she was like what's what is hulu oh is it is it like some kind of think tank and she must have said that like three times and each time he'd be like no it's like uh, it's like this and you know and each time he would just go back to the same thing it was it was just like it was the funniest thing but you know people now it's like I think like Ted Kaczynski's point, which is, you know, an obvious point, like it, it's it's not that far off from being like, you ever think about how entertainment is just the opiate of the masses that helps us cope with the fact that our lives suck and we spend all of our time at work for soulless corporations. It's, it's not that far off from that point, but that point also isn't that wrong. Like sometimes points like that, you hear them so many times and when people say them, it's almost like. They think they're coming up with some bold new idea. You ever think about how entertainment is just there to make to help us cope with how unmanageable our society is? You know, it's not wrong, though. It's just you're sick of hearing that point. But it's only gotten more true, I think, with Netflix and Hulu and people's dependence on computers and phones and everything. And so, you know, now it's like. I don't know what people would do without it. I mean, I know what I do without it. I, I do this. <laughs> I talk. I criticize it. I talk about it. <laughs> it, it. You know, we're so dependent on it that, like, I have to talk about it even though I don't participate. Because I'm not the kind of person, even though I'm saying, like, I hope the ind- I hope the entertainment industry collapses. I'm not angry, but I hope the entertainment industry collapses, you know, even though that's me here. It's, it's one of those things, though, where... Uh, where uh i don't know what i'm saying i don't know i I just think like it's it's like we're so dependent on it that like i have to talk about it even if i don't participate i have to talk about the shows that are coming out even if i don't participate because there's still a reflection not even of people themselves because the thing about these shows and the decisions they're making the stories they're presenting i don't even think they really reflect what people want but people are consuming things at such a rapid rate. There's such little unity. You know, there's such little unity when it comes to, you know, what people are consuming, like culturally. There's, there's very little cultural unity. So people are just consuming all of these things at their own pace. Like thinking about that girl who reviews movies for IndieWire. Indieware. Indieware? Indiewire. Are you saying wire or where? Are you are you saying wire or where? Indieware. Indiewire. I, I still don't know what you're saying. Is it some kind of think tank? Is Indiewire some kind of think tank? <laughs> but uh you're thinking about that girl who reviews that like 
she's probably pretty young. And I kind of took for granted that a lot of people, it's not like I read movie reviews. It's not like I read movie reviews, but I kind of took for granted that the sort of people who were critics were people who were of my generation where they did go through the process of like renting movies on the weekends. They did go out. They did. Their experience was much more material like mine was. And I don't think that that's any better than anything else. I mean, the best argument for material items, which I will always prefer, I will always prefer a material item. I will always prefer putting a movie into a player of some kind. I will always prefer owning an album and putting it into the player. Putting it on the turntable, putting it in the deck. You know, I always prefer doing that. But I also rebel against that. I I try to rebel against my own materialism and say, well, yeah, you know, it's also convenient to listen to full albums on YouTube or here and there, wherever. You know, I also I rebel against that. But the best argument for materialism is digital censorship. The fact that they can just pull this stuff at any time. But another argument for it is just the experience of it all. Where if we're talking about renting movies, going to the video store growing up and renting movies, it was just it was such a different experience. Like not just because you go, not because you don't necessarily know what you're going to find, not because you have to drive there. Not because you have this limited window of time where you're allowed to watch it before you have to return it. It's not all that stuff. It's also the fact that it's unpredictable. Like even if you really want to rent a certain movie and you knew that the video store had it, you might go there and find that somebody else rented it. They only have one copy. They only have five copies and everybody rented them. You might well discover that and then you have to improvise and find something else. I remember spending way too long in video stores just trying to find something to see. And you end up finding random things, too. You end up finding things that are completely unexpected. And just thinking about how the the change from that to just knowing that exactly what you want to watch is on Netflix. And you're not going to you're not going to log into Netflix and be like, oh, we're all we got our food ready. We got our takeout. Oh, we we got our chicken tikka masala ready and we're going to watch Netflix. You know, it. You don't go to Netflix then and it's like, oh, no, it already has this many people watching it right now. And we have to wait until one of them finishes, which would be kind of cool. It'd be kind of cool if people had to go to Netflix and they found that they only had a certain number of people who could watch it at any given time. But no, you go and you know that you're immediately going to be able to watch it. And so that just changes your experience with it. You know, even just watching a movie at home used to be more of an event. Whereas now it's like you pay for this service. So you even think about renting movies differently. Like if you're watching something on Netflix, yeah, you're paying for it. You're paying your monthly subscription fee. But you're not paying for that individual movie. And as a result, you think of it that way. You think of it like, oh, I can stop watching this and it doesn't even matter. I can switch to something else. And uh, people often multitask, which I do. You know, I, I prefer to be multitasking if I can be. It's just how I am. 
like if I do watch a movie, which is extremely rare, I'm almost always doing something else like drawing or looking at stuff on my computer or writing. But, uh, you know, it's just changed the whole experience of it. So like the idea of someone writing movie reviews today, it's like there's a good chance they're watching it on their computer. There's a good chance that it's just this click of a button experience and it's a click of a button response. And I don't even know who reads movie movie reviews anymore. Because this, this review certainly offered nothing. And this girl is also a psychological hostage. You know, she clearly couldn't come out and say that the whole thing was bad. Because if she said that the whole thing was bad... Well, it sounds like she doesn't like black people being in her movies. She had to say that it was bad except for the choice of having a black woman in it. Except for the choice of... Except the regal... Except for the fact that the black woman playing Anne Boleyn was one of the most regal portrayals of Anne Boleyn that this girl had seen. She's probably seen a lot of Anne Boleyn. This girl's an Anne Boleyn connoisseur. But basically what I'm getting at is it's cheap and fake all the way up and down from the product itself to the review. And you could say maybe it was always that way and maybe it was, but I think there's been a decline, but that's okay. You know, we want that. We want all this stuff to fall apart because it doesn't actually hurt anybody. But I'm always waiting for people. I'm always waiting for a certain type of person to finally snap. I'm always waiting for a certain type of person to finally just say, you know what, I'm kind of sick of them doing this. I'm kind of sick of knowing what their intention was behind their casting decisions. I'm kind of sick of knowing, I'm, I'm kind of sick of recognizing this trend in everything that I watch. But it doesn't seem to have happened, and I thought it already would have. But I think people silently notice. But they say nothing because they know that noticing it out loud makes you a bad person somehow. The girl who wrote the Indie Indie Wire review, she knew that saying anything, doing anything except praising the black actress's performance would potentially draw criticism. And people have a a lot of difficulty with that criticism. I mean, I've never had a bunch of people come after me. Like on the rare occasions that I've gotten in an online argument, either with, I mean, as a teenager, I got in online arguments all the time. But I was screwing with people. You know, I was just joking around and messing with people most of the time. But as an adult, I, I can think of very few times when I've gotten in like real heated online arguments. Some people are doing it constantly. And they insult you because it's the age of ad hominem. Just in staying in living my vampiric lifestyle, I've been staying up late and it's really the only time that I just kind of do mindless things. That's kind of why I like it right now why it's good for me right now to stay up extremely late is because it's the only time when I don't feel any pressure to be working on anything, when I don't feel any need to be getting something done. 
and I it's like you know the whole world's asleep. So it's it's kind of the only time that I just live a very mindless, you know, I just do mindless things, and uh, that involves sometimes just kind of seeing what people are saying online. I find it very fascinating, but I'm just noticing just the hostilities. Just it's beyond the beyond at this point. And it plays into the recent episode about, you know, signaling intelligence any way you can. That seems to be the MO these days that people are operating under. Signal intelligence and anybody who disagrees with you, call them a moron. The number of responses I see in arguments, because I'll look at these online arguments and I've noticed that everything turns into an argument. Yeah, that's not new. We've known that the, the Internet has been the place where people argue about stupid stuff forever. But I don't remember normal people doing it to this extent. Like we've known there's always been a certain sort of young man who talks shit and argues. It's always been a stereotype of Internet users going back to the as long as I've been online, as long as I've been online. And they even found like old Usenet groups from the 80s or whatever that's called. And they were arguing back then. So it's always been a part of things. Of course, people are going to argue. But I'm noticing that normal people argue so often over everything. And it's not just politics, although that seems to infect it too. Like people only need the slightest excuse to say, huh, kind of sounds like you're a right-wing conspiracy theorist who believes in misinformation. I didn't expect people to run with the misinformation thing like they have. I didn't expect all of these media outlets who talked about misinformation so much. I didn't expect that to rub off on people to the extent that it has. I see so many accusations about misinformation. It's incredible. That, that really did rub off on people. People were actually susceptible to that. Not to the misinformation itself, the so-called misinformation. They were susceptible to that brand, that scarlet letter. And that's what it is capital M misinformation like I see people comment on podcasts like popular podcasts that are just dudes talking they're comedians they're random dudes they're not politicians they're not people who have positions of power beyond the fact that they have a platform to say whatever they want and they just mostly just ramble on like anybody does in a conversation but the number of people i see these days who hear what somebody says on a podcast and say what he's doing is dangerous because he's spreading misinformation people have latched onto that one but i mean i saw someone arguing about like there was something about like somebody said like oh if you're ever fainting because everybody's also an expert and everything so there's somebody who's an expert in what to do when you're fainting, which is just like housewife knowledge. Don't go swimming. It's like, it, you know, it's like a, a wives tale or something. But if you ever go swimming, you know, don't don't eat. Don't go swimming right after you eat because you'll die. You know, it's that sort of talk. But it comes from this place of like, no, well, I this is actually science we we're discussing. And if you're about to faint. But people are arguing over, like, what you should do if you think you're about to faint. <laughs> you know, I seriously saw that the other night. I was like, holy shit, that turned into an argument. Holy smokes, that turned into an argument. 
You're spreading misinformation about what you should do if you're about to faint. Oh my god. But yeah, I see a lot of the intelligence signaling where the, the idea is that I'm an expert and you're a fucking moron. I see a lot of fucking moron. You're, you're fucking stupid. How quickly people f just jump into ad hominem. If they can do it politically, they will. Even if there's no basis for it. If somebody... Because if you have an opinion that goes against the smallest thing and that opinion can be bundled in with another set of opinions that are totally unrelated, but they've become politically bundled. Like if somebody can connect those dots, if they can follow that hyperlink, they will. And so political ad hominem is big. But when that's not available, it's just straight up like you're a fucking moron. Listen, you fucking idiot i noticed it's it's once again what i was saying at the start of coronavi where i was like this is going to be a psychological pandemic because people already weren't well they already weren't prepared in any way and they've consumed so much like they they like lockdown really allowed people to consume at a rate that they never had like they were already consuming a lot of information they were already consuming they were already streaming they were already streaming but it allowed them to completely exhaust everything and they take it for granted and they dissect it and we all dissect i do a lot of dissecting myself but it allowed them to become bored with everything and it allowed them to become angry and the amount of information people are consuming i mean it's it's the information age that's what it's been called for a while and it's what marshall McLuhan said about the global village will be one of hostility because people coming together digitally, he said, won't give people common ground. He said, there's, there's no reason to believe that the global village will be amicable. He said the global village will actually cause even more hostility. And that, I believe that's what we're seeing. You know, Marshall McLuhan knew what he was talking about. Because the hostility is, I've never seen it before. I have never seen it at this level. How quickly anything and everything devolves into hostility. And how many people think they know what's right. Not just morally, not just ethically. But information wise, data wise. And how humorous, how humorless they are about it. You know, because as I've said, like sense of humor is the first thing that goes when they talk about people getting old, they're like memory is the first thing that goes. Well, in a psychological pandemic, humor is the first thing to go, and it's been going for a while. There have been campaigns against humor. But as individuals, when they're fearful, it's like if, you, if you've ever been friends with somebody or family members of somebody and they're having a hysterical meltdown, if you try to use humor, they get angry at you. Like even if it's not at their expense, like it's one thing if you say it about like if they're upset about something and you make a, an inappropriate joke or an inopportune joke. But even if you try to disarm the situation with just a little light humor, they either don't sense the humor 
or they become angry at it. And that's a lot of what, of what I'm seeing, where I see where like somebody will have a sense of humor about something and the response to it is just pure unbridled anger. And it reminds me of humorless people I've known throughout my life, where if you make a facetious joke, they'll be like, no, it's not. It's almost, I mean, seriously, where what I see from people, it's almost at the level where if you were to say, gee, it's really raining cats and dogs here. It's like someone would say, I haven't seen a single cat or dog fall from the sky. You don't actually believe there are cats and dogs falling from the sky, do you? Do you have a source? Do you have a source for that? Do you have a source that shows a single cat or dog fell from the sky? It's almost the level people are on. And I think some of that's been brought out by fear, but I think it's also been cultural trends because they're not consuming funny stuff. And yeah, you know, comedy is subjective. Humor is subjective. But I know when something's funny, even if I don't personally laugh. I know when something is funny, even if I don't like it. And a lot of what I see just truly isn't funny. Most of what I notice people find funny these days is anything that is at the expense of their political rival. Most humor that I see is the, the only times that people seem to get a thrill out of humor is, is if it's at the expense of a political rival. And, you know, I'm sure it's not true down the board, but there is a trend in this way. But they're consuming things they don't actually like. And they can't even admit, they can't even describe the aspects of it they don't like because so much of what they're consuming is preloaded and manufactured to pander to some sort of social or political sensibility they have. So they really only like it on those grounds. And you know, yeah, I'm making, I'm, I'm painting, I'm painting here with a, a quite a, a broad brush, but this is real. This is real. This is this this is Israel. This is Israel speaking. And so it's no wonder people are so nasty. I don't think they get any relief. I don't think there's any restraint. I don't think there's any discipline. So why wouldn't they jump to ad hominem? Why wouldn't they be humorless? And then you throw in constant biological fear. Coronavirus. This tribal fear that the rival tribe is constantly trying to ruin you and kill people and take everything away from you, trying to undermine everything you believe is good and right. Not much room to relax. Not much room to cultivate goodwill. Not much room, you know... Not much to help you see through the illusion, that's for sure. But I think people still know it's an illusion. But they've invested in it. 
Because people invest in the illusion. But it's amazing to witness. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad I get to see this. Because when I think back about two years ago today when my mom died, she died in a substantially different world. December 2019 was a substantially different world. Yeah, there were aspects of it that were the same. Aspects of it were moving in this direction. But it really went full force in the time since then. And there's a part of me that thinks, and I'm I'm like, you know, I'm kind of glad that she didn't have to contend with all this. I don't think that this is a world that was meant for her. You know, she was a very, she was pure of heart. She had a lot of wisdom. She was very sharp. But she was so pure of heart. There's a part of me that's kind of glad that she's not a part of this phase of the world. She didn't need to be. But it's going to become more and more masochistic. Mark my words. It's already masochistic. All this stuff that I'm describing is masochistic. And it's going to become more so. People are going to torture themselves. Entertainment is going to torture people. It already is, whether they know it or not. But it's it's only going to torture them more. And even though I want it to collapse... Even though I want to see the entertainment industry completely collapse. It'll probably be one of the last things to collapse. Because it's so parasitic. It will do anything to keep itself intact. It will do anything to keep itself functioning. I mean, we've seen that in the last year and a half. Because it's not for the people. You know, I, more and more I see it as something that uses the people to sustain itself. So it probably won't be one of the first things to collapse. And there are, you know, good arguments people are making that we're in a collapse right now. It seems apparent to me. I try not to be married to that idea because I don't actually want to see societal collapse. I don't actually want to see America fall apart because I love America. But there are certainly signs and there are people making good arguments that we are in a managed collapse. They're trying to make this national apocalypse as gradual as possible. And that's one of the reasons why we see so much deception. The fact that corporate media is publishing articles that say inflation is good. Those are real. There's a whole campaign. A corporate mainstream media campaign pushing the idea that inflation is actually good for you. I don't know anybody who believes that, though. I don't know who is hearing that. I don't know who's reading these articles, these editorials, and they're like, oh, this article says, I read the most interesting article. And it says inflation is good. You know, it might be. There, there must be somebody who thinks that, who buys into that. 
But I don't know that anybody truly hears that and thinks, oh, well, they're right. They must be right. But the fact that that sort of absurdity doesn't provoke people to just completely revolt, that blows my mind. It's like talking about the lab leak theory. The fact that, not the fact, but the idea that science might well, big science might well have been responsible for the creation of coronavirus. Not that it was by design, not that they planned to leak it to the world, but just the idea that it was engineered. Which was heavily, that idea was heavily censored. You couldn't post that on social media or during 2020. You couldn't suggest that coronavirus may have been engineered in a lab. And there's increasing evidence that that may be the case. It's among the leading theories. But if that came out, if it came out and it was, it was official that coronavirus was caused by big science, that we are living in that level of sci-fi horror. That big science engineered this virus. It was somehow released to the public. And now we're expected to go to big science as our heroes, as our saviors. I would, you know, part of me would expect people to just revolt, to say, for something to finally click. But I don't know that that'll happen. If that were to play out, if that scenario were to play out, where it became undeniable where this hoax, no, where this virus came from, the hoax that killed me. No, but if it were to come out explicitly where it was undeniable, I mean, obviously there wouldn't be agreement. People would spin it. But you would think that there would be widespread revolt where people would finally, like a light bulb moment, an epiphany, where people said, oh, hey, you know what? Something is horribly wrong. They lied to us. The very people who put us in this situation are the ones demanding our complete obedience pretending to be our saviors, you'd think something would finally fall into place. But you see the way people live. You see the way people, even when, they, even when it's very clear what's going on, you know, in, in terms of like politics, the sorts of messages being pushed not just in the corporate media, but by the entertainment industry, you'd think that that would be obvious to them by now, too. You'd think that they would notice. But they find a way to say, oh, it sucks. But the black woman was the best part. Oh, it really sucks, but the black woman was good. I think that same sort of... Being a psychological hostage like that basically means I can't predict anything. Not that I have some special insight. Not that I am gifted. 
Not that I'm more intelligent than these people, because I think that's the thing that gets me is that I don't see these people as stupid, and that makes it that much scarier. I wish that I could look at it and say, oh, you know, look at all these people. They're so dumb. Oh, God, look at all these dumb people. Oh, they're a bunch of freaking morons. You know, I wish I could say that. What makes it that much worse is that I don't see that. I see people I know. I see people who are capable of intelligent thought, who are of completely average intelligence. It makes it that much worse that it's them. It makes it that much worse that it's people of average intelligence or higher. Because this doesn't revolve around being smart or being dumb. This doesn't revolve. This is not intellectual in nature. I personally think that it's spiritual. But what's going on is not intellectual in nature, which is one reason to abandon attempts to, you know, discuss the the logic behind things to to get into debates that rely on the Socratic method. Because that's going to do nothing at this point. That's not the currency. The currency being exchanged is not rationale and logic. Rationality. And I don't claim to be the most rational or logical person either. I often talk on here about intuition. So I'm not even someone who wants to get into a rational discussion. And the fact that there's no audience for it anyway just means why even participate at all? If it's not something I want to do and it's not going to have any impact anyway, well, we can just throw that out now. But there's a beauty to it. Again, I'm not tortured by this. I'm not tormented. I'm not tormented by the state of things. I'm curious. I'm interested. I'm glad that I can observe it. I'm glad that I'm in a position to simply live my life right now. But uh, it tempts you. I mean, temptation is always there. I mean, the illusion is always tempting you. It's always casting that perfect shadow that says, hey, maybe this time I'll get you. Maybe this time I will suck you in. Maybe this time I'll suck you in. Did you say suck me in? There's always that, you know, beckoning call saying like, well, hey, maybe I can get you now. Maybe I can make you angry. Maybe I can make you shriek. I'm going to work on you. The shadows say, I'm going to work on this guy. And it's tempting. But it's where endurance comes in. You just have to endure it. 
but I'm not someone who likes to ignore it. You know, I like to I like to just see how it's all going. In the same way that I like to look out my window in the spring and see the squirrels scurrying across the fence. But again, I have a guilt comparing it to that. Because those squirrels do seem to have a sense of purpose. They do seem to know what they're doing. What they're doing is not fake. It's not artificial. They're building their nests. They're getting nuts. Doing what we call getting nuts. But my curiosity just says, hey, let's just keep seeing what happens around the corner. Because I feel like I spent the first, I don't know, 30 years of my life pushing myself to the edge and saying, at what point are you just going to make yourself crazy? How far can you push yourself without actually losing it? I felt like I was doing that the first 30 years of my life. Now I feel like I'm a little more reserved and I'm just kind of watching things play out and it feels like everything else is creeping up to that edge. And instead of asking myself, hey, you know, how, how close can I get? How, how close can I get without losing my mind? Instead, I feel like I'm watching everything else, everything else get close and I'm wondering at what point are they going to lose their minds? But it's clear that some people already have. Those people with the wide eyes that I always talk about. Those people whose eyes are really big. Unnaturally big. To the point where they're straining. It, it must feel natural to them at this point, though. They do it so much. But the fact that so many people have those big, wide eyes. You can see the white above the iris, which is completely unnatural. Your eyes don't do that naturally. And when I talk about this, I feel like a crazy person. And when I first brought it up to people about a year, year and a half ago, probably around summer 2020, actually, it's something I've noticed in individuals who are having some sort of mental health crisis throughout my life. Like I've noticed it in other people throughout my entire life that when they're having some sort of, when they're, when they're experiencing some kind of psychosis, or delusion their eyes get very big and you can see the white all the way around their iris you can see the white above their iris your iris is supposed to be cut off by your eyelid man I'm not supposed to be able to see that it's not a natural way to it's, it's not a it, your eyes just don't do that naturally but uh, about a year year and a half ago I remember noticing that it was happening on a massive scale. A lot of these TikTok videos that come out, some people I know, I remember looking at Instagram around summer 2020, and a lot of young women that I know, younger women under the age of 40, were making these videos talking about race, talking about politics. And I started to notice their eyes looked like that. And I commented to a friend of mine about it, and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. But he's come around. He's mentioned it, actually. He brought it up. He's like, actually, you know, now that you mentioned, since you've mentioned it, I see it now. And I'm noticing other people, too. 
I'm hearing other people notice it as well. I don't think I'm crazy for noticing that. There's something very strange in people's eyes. And it's not something where it's like, oh, it's a glint in their eye. I'm talking about actually the the muscles straining to keep their eyes huge and open. And when I saw that old psychology textbook, a, a picture from an old psychology textbook that showed at least what historically, uh, the historic depiction of a psychopath's eyes, they were exactly that. And I don't want to jump to like, oh, they're a bunch of psychopaths. Everybody turned into a psychopath. I think what it is is psychosis. I think that some people are experiencing a collective psychosis. And of course, that plays out individually. But there's a reason an idea like collective psychosis exists. Exists. There's a reason why people discuss that, because it's a real phenomenon. And I think what I've noticed in people's eyes is a reflection of that. And I wonder what the return is. Like, will people be able to return from that state of mind? This delusional righteousness, this hostility. Like, how do you return from that? I know that eventually people do, some of them. But the level of information they're exposed to now, the amount of boredom they also must contend with as they exhaust all of their entertainment resources in record time. As they grow to hate the things that they loved yesterday. You know, because you see a lot of that. How do you return from that? This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.